Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port. And today we're talking about, so we have a new tax code. What does this mean for me? And now it's time to introduce our guest. We are pleased to have with us today, Scott Hardy, partner and the federal and international in the inter, federal and international tax group at Alston and Bird. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Um, first, for our guest, can you give us a little bit about your background and the uh, focus of your practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I am a partner at Alston & Bird, which is a law firm here in Atlanta, about 800, a little over 800 lawyers. It's all around the world. It's not just Atlanta. Yeah, well, yeah, it is, it is global. We have offices throughout the U.S. and then in uh, China and Belgium. Uh, the firm is yeah, multi-service, uh, all areas, but the tax practice is very large relative to other uh, large law firms. We have about 85 uh, lawyers in the tax practice divided among trusts and estates, corporate, state and local uh, benefits. I sit in the federal and international tax group and do primarily transactional related tax work, as well as controversy audits with the IRS. My practice is really spans the spectrum, represent large public companies, but also small businesses, uh, mid-sized businesses and their owners uh, in terms of planning and um, working through M&A transactions and, and the like. Um, on the controversy side, we handle all levels of audits for our clients uh, from the administrative stage through uh, any court uh, proceedings as well. So let's jump into the owners. So we're going to talk about what what does the new tax laws mean to owners, to mostly to individuals. I know the corporate tax rate went down to 21%. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've now finished the analysis. I know the rules have changed internationally. No one understands it. So let's talk about the actual owners. Tell us uh, just what do you, the, for you, are the big kind of takeaways, the big changes to the tax code? Well, uh, you know, at the outset, just from a big picture perspective, they're dramatic. Uh, this is the most fundamental reform that we've seen in at least 30 plus years. I don't like the word reform because that suggests thought through, debated, <laughs> you know, tested with tax experts. I prefer change. Change, change is good. Um, <laughs> you know, it, from a, a reform perspective, a lot of these provisions or changes have been talked about for years. Representative Camp put out a large tax proposal in 14, uh, much of which is embodied in this law, and that had been vetted to a certain extent. Charlie Rangel put out the mother of all tax bills before him. So a lot of these changes that are in this bill have been out there for many years, and now they are only being passed now. So at least it, some of us can be a little more comforted. Uh, a little bit. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> a I've, little I've, bit. I've read commentary that would suggest that given the political environment, depending on, upon your news sources, you think you've either got a lump of coal or a pony. Yeah. And uh, I suspect it's a little bit of, of all of that and more. I think that's right. I, I mean, I think uh, net-net, it's um, intended to be a win for owners of businesses. That was uh, the focus. Certainly, the the corporations will benefit dramatically by that 20% rate, Um, but small businesses should benefit as well. The rate structures for owners have been reduced. Uh, The top rate has been reduced, not 
significantly, but from 39.6 to 37%. And the breakpoints at which the rates increase have been expanded so that... Explain that a little more simply for us. Yes, yeah, so that the highest rate kicked in previously at about $400,000, thereabouts, of taxable income. Now the highest rate's kicking in at $600,000. So you, you can make more money and not be hit by the highest rate. And that's true all the way throughout the scale. So if you look at incomes between 150 and 300, were previously subject to rates at 28 or 33%. Now those, those same brackets, those are subject to a 24% rate. So you, you, you're seeing significant or relatively significant rate cuts along the way up to that top rate of 37% which kicks in at $600,000. And I'm assuming part of that is to make up for the fact that we've lost some itemization. It's, to, it's in theory to simplify. That's right. That's right. Th those rate cuts, just what I just talked about in terms of the rate cuts and those changes, were the revenue lost by that was well over a trillion dollars. And somehow that needed to be offset. So the, the thought is, let's cut the rates and broaden the base. And broadening the base is taking away deductions. And so, yes, hopefully the intent is that those rate cuts would offset the loss of a state tax deduction for okay. your income and property taxes. So, so let's talk about something that, that most folks have heard of, which is the repeal of the personal exemption deduction. Yes. And for our listeners, can you tell us what that means? What is the tax impact of that? I think the personal exemption deduction was about $4,000 for 2017. That's what taxpayers will claim on their return. And that deduction was eliminated going forward and essentially replaced. In so what a way. was it replaced with? Really, the child tax credit is effectively what it's been replaced with. And so the deduction itself at $4,000 might be worth, let's say, $1,000 roughly. And tell me why that is. If you just tax affect the deduction, let's say you're roughly in a 25% tax bracket, maybe 30%, it's worth about a quarter of the deduction. And that's because it's a deduction, so you just don't pay the tax on that amount. That's right. So for $4,000, right. you don't pay a 25% tax. Correct. I got you. Correct. Child credit's different, though. Child tax credit. And the child tax credit is in place for 17 as well, just at a lower amount of 1000 and so what Senator Rubio really pushed for was enhancing that child tax credit. So doubling it from $1,000 to $2,000. But what, And does that have uh, limits on uh, the income of folks who can benefit from that? Yes. So what, um, the child tax credit was only available really for taxpayers that made about $110,000 or less. And now it's married. Up. Yeah. Now, this is very significant. It was increased to $500,000, I'm sorry, $400,000. At a, a much higher income threshold, you can benefit from the child tax credit, which a lot of taxpayers weren't able to benefit from it, before. Explain the difference, because it's big, between a credit, a tax credit, and a deduction. So a tax credit is a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset against your tax liability. A deduction reduces taxable income, but is not a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction against the liability. So it's worth use, less. So using this example, you're going to save $2,000 on your taxes compared to, for a kid, the only the 25% of the 4000 Yeah, exactly. Except that you may have more than one kid. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And, and you get a $2,000 credit per child, per qualifying child, which is to say 17 years old or younger. Um, 
So that's a significant, if you had two or three or four children, that's $2,000 per child. So very significant. So when folks think about deductions, they need to think about their effective tax bracket in terms of the consequences to them. Absolutely. So yeah, that deduction, you know, if you're at a 37% bracket is worth more to you than if you're at a 24% bracket. Now, I, I noticed that the child credit, the child tax credit is only for kids who are under 18, under 17 by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So what if you have a kid in college, you used to get an exemption, but you don't have that anymore. What happens now? You, you mean, so your child turns 18? Yes, or he's in, yes, or he's a dependent, but in college. Dependent in college. In terms of the child tax credit, I'm not sure that you could claim that. I haven't looked at that particular issue, but there are, there's another uh, benefit, I think, for other dependents. Yeah, that's uh, what right. I was talking about. Yeah. I, it's under 17 years, but there's a new yeah. one that I had never heard of. It's a, it's for a $500 credit for kids who are not qualifying, mm-hmm. which says, I thought it said something like what used to be other exemptions. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that applies to. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm not as familiar with that particular, at least what the qualifications are for that deduction or that credit. So I'd have to look at that. And, and one of the other big deals, of course, I assume this is the biggest deal for most people is the standardized deduction. How yes. did that change? Yep. So the standardized deduction uh, was about a little over $12,000 uh, for a taxpayer um, last year, and it's been doubled. So it effectively doubled up to $24,000. Uh, significantly, uh, that was a, about a $700 billion cost to the bill, so very significant amount of money that was given up. Um, but it uh, effectively draws a lot of itemized taxpayers into a non-itemized uh, position. And from congressional's Congress's perspective, it simplifies the tax code. So simplification was a, an original goal. This may be the only aspect of the tax bill that involves simplification, that you, if, if you put more taxpayers in a non-itemized uh, filing position, it, it's a lot easier for them to complete their tax return. So obviously everybody's situation is different, but Maybe on average, what would that mean for the sort of average middle to high income taxpayer? Of course, now you have to define middle to high income because right. yeah. we all have different <laughs> perspectives. That's right. So, so what would uh, doubling the deduct the standard deduction mean for yes. a, a middle? Let's say a hundred thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of income. Yeah, I mean, what's going to ha- what they're going to have to do is assess. Um, the benefits of itemizing versus not itemizing. And really, it's just a mathematical calculation for the most part. Um, going forward, you're going to look at your, your main deductions for any taxpayer, pretty much your state taxes that you pay. And your, that has a big change. Tell us what the change is, because that's going to affect a lot of people in Georgia yeah. and other states that have property tax or income tax. That's, that's right. That's a huge dedu- deduction. You can deduct your property taxes and your state income taxes. Now, that's been capped at $10,000. And I want to underscore that because when we hear on the radio or the news, everyone says property taxes. That's a big deal. And it is in Georgia. But Georgia also has a 6% income tax. It's income tax as well. That's right. Yeah. And And so that could be a big number for a lot of people. Yeah. When you add those two together, if you own a home, you're paying property taxes and you pay state income taxes, then you could easily exceed $10,000 in Georgia. That'll be capped going forward at $10,000, at least for the next um, eight years uh, until it sunsets. And tell um, us what a sunset means. So a sunset is effectively 
we have a law in place for a temporary period of time, after which we will revert back to the current state of affairs as it was in 2017. Unless we change our minds. Unless they change their minds in between. Right. Which many of the things we're talking about do have that sunset for individuals. For individuals, that's right. The the corporate provisions primarily, they do not sunset. They are permanent. Um, And that was another goal of the legislation was uh, a priority on permanence. Um, unfortunately, except for, only the, except for individuals, <laughs> the individuals did not get that. We get a, essentially an eight year period where all of everything we're talking about now is essentially going to be in place for eight years unless Congress changes you, its mind. So, so focusing back on the, on the increased standard deduction, were there also changes to the percentage I may not be describing this correctly, but my recollection is for medical expenses or Mm -hmm. reimbursed uh, business expenses. There was a percentage over which uh, you could take a deduction, but if you didn't hit that percentage, you couldn't take the deduction. Have those changed in terms of, you know, the math of figuring out whether you should itemize or not? Yeah, at least for medical expenses, uh, previously it was, uh, you had to incur expenses in excess of 10% of your taxable income. And that's been reduced to seven and a half percent. So you have a threshold, uh, which is lower above which you can deduct. So if you incur expenses over seven and a half percent of your taxable income, you can deduct those. That's helpful for taxpayers. But that's only going to be for two years and then it goes back to 10. Yeah. Well, it's effective in 2017. So for last year. The reduced percentage amount? Yes. For for the medical. For the medical is effective for last year. I don't recall when that one sunsets though. Okay. Uh, But it it, 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 it does sunset at some point, but that's still a deduction. That's right. That's what I would. Okay. Yeah. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslewitz Frankel. We are talking today with Scott Hardy, partner in the federal and international tax group at Alston & Berg. So when we talk about, before we get to some of the itemized deductions, I want to ask a question. Yeah. There used to be what, what was called several above the line deductions Mm -hmm. that you got to do whether you had a standardized deduction or not. It wasn't part of itemization. What's the difference in that? So um, the above the line deductions are really preferred deductions in that they're not subject to a lot of these limitations that we're talking about. And so in reaching your AGI, your taxable, your adjusted gross income, you can reduce your gross income, your wages, whatever, by pension contributions. Um, you know, contributions to a health savings account. Those are generally preferred deductions. And so to the extent you can make contributions to a 401k and other retirement plans, those deductions are considered to be above the line. And from a, you know, an accountant's perspective or a tax lawyer's perspective, those are generally very preferred. And you're going to get those, the 401ks and largely the health savings and all that, that stayed in place. Yes. But there were a couple one in particular alimony mm-hmm. that didn't. To explain what yeah. that is, because that's going to affect a bunch of people. Yeah, so alimony, and I need, I need to look at these effective dates, but previously you could pay alimony and, and get a deduction for the amount of the alimony and the uh, other the spouse would pick up that income, the recipient's spouse. But the, but the deal, of course, was it wasn't dollar for dollar because normally the person paying the alimony mm-hmm. has a substantially larger income. That's correct. And so, so the, the deduction, deduction has more is, value to is, them. Uh, exactly. Which is why, I mean, it, 
you know, I, I got this question from someone as to, okay, well, what was the theory behind the change? And the change is that you don't get the deduction anymore and there's no income pickup on the other side, which is in a lot of this tax reform effort, you know, the revenue and the dollars and cents are what drive the decisions, not necessarily policy. And so in this case, yes, the change is if you don't get the deduction, that means you're not getting a deduction at a higher income level for the payer typically earns more. So that deduction is more valuable to them. So they take away that valuable deduction from a higher wage earner. And the income inclusion by the spouse is typically at a lower rate. And so they don't have an income inclusion at that lower rate. So that, that's the change. They effectively just generated more revenue for this bill. And as a practical matter, on a simplification standpoint, it makes it easier. Child support, alimony, no tax, no deduction. We don't have to worry about that in divorce cases anymore. That's right. That's right. Although, like like a lot of folks, my CPA sent out his summary of what's going on. And according to his notes, the change in alimony is effective for tax years beginning in uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. And alimony paid under separation agreements entered prior to 2019 will generally be grandfathered under the old rules. That's so, right. Uh, I think if there's an amendment and you elect to have the new rules apply, then the new rules would apply. But but you could still amend an agreement that's grandfathered and not have the new rules apply. I believe. So, so, so let me hear if I ha- see if I'm hearing it right. You're telling everybody for those rich people who need feel like they need to get a divorce, get divorced now. What an interesting <laughs> statement to our listeners. <laughs> well, one of the other big changes that we expected that didn't quite happen is this thing that I've never understood except that it hurts me mm-hmm. called the alternative minimum tax. Yeah, yeah. What happened on that? Well, well also, uh, also known as AMT, not to be confused with the machine where you go to uh, get cash. Right. right. They, uh, the, they, were, they did propose initially to repeal both corporate and individual AMT. Uh, and the individual AMT is essentially a, a calculation of an alternative tax. You calculate your regular tax liability and if you got too much of a benefit in deductions, then you effectively pay a higher tax because you just deducted too much. Um, and and so that was done to, a while ago, so the number was pretty low. Yes. And yeah. they, for some reason, but never it was raised never, that. Yeah, it was never indexed to inflation or cost of living increases or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Congress kind of went through this annual exercise where they would um, uh, adjust it that they, uh, each year. So they effectively tried to index it for inflation each year by increasing the exemption. But the AMT started to creep into lower and lower income uh, thresholds. And so a lot of people who uh, it was never intended to affect have been affected by the AMT. And so Congress has long wanted to repeal the AMT. Even uh, Charlie Rangel and his bill had proposed to repeal the AMT. The problem is it's very, very expensive to repeal because they, have, they are anticipating this revenue and to cut it, it's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. So at the end of the day, the corporate AMT was repealed, uh, so good for corporations, but for individuals, no such repeal. But they did give a benefit. They increased the exemption amount to about $110,000, and there's this complicated calculation you have to go to, but nonetheless, that's an increase. And the phase-outs for this exemption were increased to a million dollars. So, so explain what a phase-out is. So if you hit a certain income threshold, uh, let's say, I, and I don't know what the AMT phase out was earlier, but it was very low compared to where a million dollars, then that exemption, you could exempt $110,000 from the AMT. Very, that's a helpful uh, benefit. That would, you would lose that benefit, that exemption, that 
So it gradually it goes down. Go away. Exactly. It would gradually reduce. At some point, it would just be completely gone. But now that phase out doesn't even kick in until a million dollars of income. So it's it's just unlikely to hit the vast majority of taxpayers. Let does me it, ask, does, is it indexed at a million? No, no. I mean, does is inflation? So that bottom number does it increase? Yes, it is indexed. I'm pretty sure. But they changed the index, and this is this is a very minute point for uh, listeners. But nonetheless. They've changed the index. It's not CPI anymore. It's a different type of CPI. So the index is going to be going up a lot slower. And it was another way for them to raise money in this bill. So a lower, a lower rate. A lower rate of increase. Yes. Let me ask a, a broader question. You've mentioned a few times about revenue loss and revenue pickup. And we've all heard the political debate about that. But purely from a tax practitioner's perspective, where is the pickup for the areas where revenue has been lost? Mm-hmm. What, where, where is the money coming from? You mean other than you and me? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, so where's the revenue coming from? For all these revenue losses we're talking right. about, where does it come from? Well, um, actually, I, I did have a, a list here just to name a few so that you had asked about the personal exemption, that $4,000. The repeal of that raised $1.2 trillion in the bill. That was a significant revenue raiser. Another one was repealing a lot of the itemized deductions that we've uh, talked about. And if, that, you, if you total those, what is that number? That's close. That was about $700 billion, So you're close to $2 trillion just on those two items. The inflation adjustment thing that I just talked about, that's $130 billion that they gained. So they're, it's kind of scattered mm-hmm, uh, throughout the bill. But there are some real big ticket items uh, that helped. And, and again, not, not. Oh, and don't forget the mandate, the ACA. They repealed you know, the mandate right. for uh, uh, ACA. So that, that raised another 300 plus billion dollars. But they kept the 3.8% tax. Unfortunately, yes. Before we get it, let's talk about some of the big itemized numbers. I mean, where we got lost some itemized uh, deductions. But I had a question. When you're when you're sitting, the the our listeners deciding, well, gosh, should I try to use some of the itemized, or should I just go with the standardized deduction? And it's a close call. One of the advantages, actually, it seems to me, and and tell me if I'm right for the for the taxpayer is, if you use the standardized deduction, the likelihood of an audit or a mistake goes mm, way down dramatically. And so that I really think people need to listen to that yeah. when you're close. Yeah. No, I I think that's a very good point. By not itemizing, I wouldn't say you're off the radar, but they're, they're you're, focusing. You're less of a red flag. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, now you're just dealing with income. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. That You're focused on income. If you had some underreported income, that's where they would be looking. They're not going to be looking at deductions. So I'm, I'm going to ask what may be a silly question, but are there certain segments of the tax preparing world that are concerned because of simplification? They're going to have less to do. Uh, I, I think net-net, they have a lot more to do. Um, in the sense that yeah, for maybe for a taxpayer who doesn't have a, a small business, then yes, that, that's probably the case. The return should be a whole lot easier to prepare. But if you had a small business and you're trying to navigate this new world of do I get a 20% deduction on my flow through income, that is a lot more complicated. Also known as a lawyer's full employment act. Yes. Yeah, yes. So, so let's talk about some of the big deductions that we've lost that are going to impact our listeners the most. Kind of tell us what the highlights are and then what we should be looking at. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, the, big dedu- the biggest one is 
uh, and the one that gained the most press is the SALT deduction, state and local tax deduction. Um, that's capped at 10000 Got a lot of pushback from states like California, New York, high-income high tax states. Um, but even in Georgia, I mean, you've got states where taxpayers easily can exceed $10,000, and they've lost a fairly significant deduction. And I like to use math, so I'm going to do a simple math and tell me if I did it right. Yeah. So you've got $200,000 of taxable income once you've done whatever you've taken. Mm -hmm. That means you're going to pay in Georgia $12,000 of tax. Yes. And you've got your, whatever your real estate taxes are. Mm -hmm. And let's assume it's $5,000 because you live outside the city of Atlanta. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you've now got $17,000, but you can only deduct 10. That's correct. So you've lost a $7,000 deduction, which at the current income levels, let's say for federal tax purposes, at using your example of two hundred thousand, that's about twenty five percent. So it's roughly two thousand dollars. And obviously, real the dollars. more you go up, it goes worse. That's right. What exactly. are some other ones? That's the biggie. The uh, itemized miscellaneous itemized deductions that are subject to a two percent floor are gone, so that you you cannot deduct miscellaneous itemized And what, what would be examples, examples of the miscellaneous? Um, so an example of miscellaneous itemized deduction would be tax prep fees, unreimbursed employee expenses, some types of investment expenses, gambling losses, hobby expenses. There, there's a, an extensive list of these types of uh, expenses that people deduct that are no longer deductible. What else we got? Let's see. I think... I, I also have seen that, that entertainment expenses are no longer deductible. And, and is that business entertainment? Yeah. Uh, business reimbursement? So that's but only for related. the individual, not for pass-throughs. Yes. So that, that is, that's an important one. I'm thinking more kind of on a Schedule A type, at least the, what I just mentioned is your Schedule A. Well, I had one on deductions. I'm not sure it's a Schedule A, but it is important to a lot of people. What about home equity loans mm. that people used to load up cars and renovations and stuff. What's the changes there? Yeah, so that, that's a good one. The mortgage interest uh, deduction. So home equity loans were deductible. You could have up to $100,000 of home equity and deduct the interest on that. That is no longer deductible. Um, there's no grandfathering provision. They're just simply not deductible. That interest is gone as a deduction. And then going forward, the cap on acquisition indebtedness for a principal residence, if you bought a home, uh, used to be a million dollars going forward. Now it's seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So any debt over that amount would not be uh, deductible. Now, we this is something that folks ought to check with their financial advisor on. But given that limited deductibility, <laughs> it may actually reverse uh, what's been a common practice, which is to load up on debt and take advantage of the deduction, and instead now perhaps pay off mortgages and certainly. Uh, home equity lines of credit if they're not grandfathered in sooner and you end up with an effective return on your money equal to the interest rate you would have otherwise been paying. So right. I think mm -hmm. from a personal finance perspective, that's something that folks need to be sensitive to. What, I agree. What does acquisition costs mean? Does that mean renovation costs? And what if you renovate later? What if you refinance? I know that's three yeah. questions and I'd get an <laughs> objection if I were in court, but what, is, what does acquisition costs mean? Yeah. Well, uh, in terms of, let me just address the refinancing. Those are permissible. So if you did have a uh, you know, mortgage before, the, the cutoff date is December the 15th. It's not actually January 1st, 2018. So if you bought a home after December 15th, then you need to be concerned. Of, of which year? Of 2017. So um, there, there 
you could be subject to the seven hundred fifty thousand. But but even within the seven fifty, I buy a house for five hundred thousand dollars. I get a loan, and two years from now, in two thousand twenty, I decide to refinance. Yes, from the five hundred thousand. Right. Yeah. So that's uh, assuming you're still under the seven fifty. You can refinance and and deduct the interest on that. Or I'm sorry, if you you're talking about home equity. No, no home uh, home acquisition. I got yeah. an original loan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about if I that two years from now, I still got the 500, but I'm going to put $100,000 of repairs into the house mm-hmm. and I refinance. I don't get a home equity loan and I, I refinance at 600. Mm-hmm. Is that still deductible? As acquisition indebtedness, I'm, I'm not. So we're gonna, our listeners need to say, wonder and talk to their planners yeah. and to their tax people, which a part of that, that 500 is still it's, or not still. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, a lot of people would put that into a home equity line in which case you would lose that deduction. But now you might refinance instead, was right. really where I was going. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess the the other thing for people who do have existing loans before December 15th, that maybe they were a million dollars or $900,000 and wanted to refinance that loan in 2018 or 19, that under the law is permissible and you're still grandfathered on that loan. Great. I noticed one good thing and I wanna, I'm not sure I understood it. So itemized deductions, not the miscellaneous, but normal itemized deductions used to have a phase out the more money you made. Yes. Is that still there? Uh, it's gone. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So you, you're no longer phased out. I mean, uh, so they cut that out and arguably you can just deduct more, but they've cut out how much you can, they cut out the things you can deduct. So, you know, your mortgage interest is limited. They cap your SALT deduction. So they gave you a birthday gift, but the box is empty. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I guess you can, you can give more to charity. Um, the, the thresholds have been increased there. You can give instead of 50% of your adjusted income, you can give uh, 60%. Um, but there's no phase out of the itemized. Okay, though. but let, let's talk about charity because that's a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. So charity, you're only going to get your deduction if you itemize. Yes. So you if you to. take the standardized deduction, you don't get a charitable deduction. That is correct. You lose the charitable deduction. Do you have any thoughts as to how that's going to hurt or help or affect our charitable giving? I mean, I've got to think that for the taxpayers who move into a standard, they're claiming the standard deduction. It at least takes away the incentive from a just fiscal perspective to give to charity. Uh, A lot of donors probably don't give for the deduction, although it's a nice benefit, but some do. And so it's likely to take away that incentive. Now, some of the strategies I've heard to deal with that would be to bunch your contributions in one year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another option would be to have a donor advised fund where you make a large contribution so you get the benefits and then you can continue your annual giving Mm-hmm. without having to be subject to what's happening with the uh, uh, the tax consequences now of making those charitable deductions. So what you mean is yeah. you give a big contribution that you can now itemize this year. Correct, because and then it next, goes to a char- uh, donor-advised fund. And then you don't give a big donation the next year, and then the next year you do it again, something like that? Um, yeah, I mean, if it's... Uh, you know, you figure out how much it would take to benefit from the deduction. You make mm-hmm. that contribution to your donor advised fund, which would then be deductible that year because it is a true gift at that time. But 
on a donor advised fund, and maybe we ought to explain this a little. Yeah, bit. Scott, tell yeah. us what a donor advised fund is. So essentially, you you get a, a current deduction for uh, contributing funds into this fund, which then you can essentially direct uh, the the gifts going forward. You know, all the money doesn't effectively go to the church. So I could give twenty thousand this year. Yeah, but I can only tell the fund give out ten for this year, right. give out ten for next right. year to my own charity. Yeah, and that's exactly although, right. Although you're not limited to doing so. You have control over the, the contribution. That's There's right. There's not a limit on what you can give out after you've made the contribution. Right. You're just directing Correct. the donor-advised uh, concept uh, to where the money goes. I, I A lot of times I've heard that people think, our listeners often think that donor-advised funds are complicated and that only rich people can use them. Is that yeah. right? No. I mean, there are lower thresholds that you, you don't have to have a million dollars to set up a donor advised fund. And there are opportunities out there to invest. I mean, you have to consult a financial advisor, but they can help direct you. Yeah. And, and I would this, encourage our listeners to go. There's a lot of funds for the discount brokerage firms that have donor advised funds with very low thresholds. Mm-hmm. A lot of religious organizations that the, the uh, I forget the names, but the there's several religious organizations mm-hmm. that have very low thresholds. Yes. And so that people should look into those. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to at least emphasize the point you're making is that batching contributions into certain tax years. If you're on the fence between a standard deduction and itemizing, batching your charitable contributions in one tax year would make sense to get the benefit of those charitable deductions. And not if you're sprinkling them out over a period of years and and taking the standard deduction, then you're losing the the tax benefit of those deductions. Right. And I wanted to second what Craig said about the uh, donor-advised funds. Um, With many of the uh, brokerage firms, particularly the discount brokerage firms, you can set one up yourself. I've done so. Uh, No attorneys needed. The minimums were very uh, doable. So it is certainly something that folks ought to think about in light of these uh, new tax changes. Can I mention uh, one of, I don't want to flip too much, but going back to the SALT deduction, because it does tie into the charitable deduction a little bit. Because your deductions are capped at 10,000, Georgia at least, and maybe some other states, have a program where you can make payments to a, a, a scholarship organization. They're called Student Scholarship Organizations, SSOs. You can find it on the website. Um, and they will give, if you make a contribution to this organization, you get a tax credit in Georgia for that contribution. It's a credit. It's a credit against your Georgia taxes. So it's effectively like you're paying your Georgia taxes, but you're giving it to this organization. You also get a federal tax deduction, charitable deduction for that contribution. So my point in saying this is that if you're giving, and it, these are low amounts, but nonetheless, you can get an incremental benefit. If you give $2,500 to one of these organizations, you're paying your Georgia taxes early, early, but you're getting a charitable deduction for that. So the $10,000 cap has now become 12500 and not 10000 So you, you can increase that. And, and one quick advice to our listeners, there is a cap on how many of that can happen in Georgia. So you've got to apply early and the time to apply is this month. Yeah. So go to the schools that you care about and make your donations yeah. this month. Yeah. You want to, you, you got to do it early. Um, but nonetheless, it's a way to try to increase those deductions. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. 
We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We are talking with Scott Hardy, partner in the federal and international tax group at Alston and Bird. So you said you might want to, I can't recall the word you use, but put buckets, give more to, to in a single year rather than sprinkling it. You could do it with charitable donations. Could you do it with 529 education plans? Uh, well, for 529s, you can give quite, I'm not sure the thresholds of contributions to 529s. They're, uh, they're but, fairly extensive, as yeah, I recall. Hundreds right. of thousands of dollars. Lots, exactly. Uh, which you could do, but uh, you don't get a deduction for those contributions to 529s. And can you tell our listeners there has been a substantial change in what the 529 money can now be used for in terms of educational purposes? Yeah, and, uh, and that was significant. They, um, You can now... Uh, distribute from a 529 per student up to $10,000 for um, secondary education, um, which is uh, a big change because now that it doesn't have to just go to an undergrad, undergraduate school or they higher They can go to kindergarten through whatever. Yes. yes. And what is the advantage of giving to a 529 plan? Uh, well, uh, growth in the plan uh, is tax-free so that you can, if, if, if you give early and let it grow, then you can distribute it uh, and not pay tax on that distribution. So the contribution is not deductible, but the growth essentially is tax free. Right. It's like a Roth IRA gotcha, for, gotcha, for gotcha. education. The other change is so you can you can now distribute up to ten thousand for those secondary school expenses. Um, and included in that is homeschool. So if you do homeschool, then you can uh, distribute from a five twenty nine for those expenses as well. Now let's get to the one that's the most complicated that at first glance sounds like a great deal to small business owners, but upon reflection, maybe not so good. So yeah. they're called pass-throughs. Tell us what happened on pass-throughs. Well, maybe maybe tell our listeners first what a pass-through is. <laughs> so a pass-through is essentially a, a partnership, an S-corporation, or just a sole proprietor if you're in business uh, and don't have an entity. A pass-through is that income just flows to you directly. It, it passes through the entity. Exactly. Sub-S flows through from the business to you, it's on your tax return. So in, uh, I guess, coordination with reducing corporate rates dramatically, a lot of the senators and Congress wanted to provide um, reduced tax to business owners that own businesses through partnerships and S-corps. And so they allowed or uh, provided for a 20% deduction on qualified business income that comes from or through these entities. So in theory, if you got, well, talk about what qualified business income is, <laughs> yes. complicated, but essentially <laughs> yeah. if you had qualified business income of $100,000, you're only going to be taxed on 80. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Okay. Now tell us what qualified business income is. <laughs> so, so it has to be income from a qualified trader business, which is essentially any trader business other than a service business. Ah, the other than the service <laughs> business. Tell us what that means. So a service business um, excludes or includes Businesses such as law, accounting, uh, healthcare, ser service businesses in these fields, but it's more expansive than that. There's a whole list of specified businesses. Do you have a but, sense of what the policy rationale was for excluding service businesses? Money. <laughs> <laughs> I do think revenue was a part of it for sure. It's an interesting question. And uh, I actually got this question recently. My thinking is that the proposals initially were designed to give a tax break to capital-intensive businesses like manufacturing and whatnot. And the House proposal initially provided as such. I mean, you, your deduction was linked 
to how much capital you had in the business. Now, they, they moved away from that and just kind of provide for this 20%. It's not linked to capital, but they've excluded these service businesses. I don't know why they did that. Partly money, maybe the, this theory that it's just intended for capital-intensive businesses. But nonetheless, uh, these businesses have been excluded. And it's, it's an expansive list. I mean, this is a lot of the economy when you're talking about, I mean, we are a service economy. We provide services. And when you're cutting out financial services, businesses and law and health and accounting and any business based on reputation or skill, you're cutting out a lot of And, and when we say service, we really mean service. It basically means if you're your own primary employee, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are, you are out now. Except for engineers and architects yeah, yeah. who have very good lobbyists. <laughs> they had great lobbyists. Engineers and architects were included in the first proposals and somehow were excluded. So engineers and architects got a, a pretty good deal. Well, those 85 tax lawyers at Alston and Bird, they, they didn't do me a good service here. They're, when I saw it, this looks bad. I, so I, I suspect that has to do with infrastructure. <laughs> What's that? Infrastructure. Yeah. Yep. There is kind of, so it looks really bad for service people yeah. that they don't get this reduced rate, right. but there seems to be an exception. Yeah, there's an exception where if, if your income is effectively below, I'm going to say 415, which is- As the, a family. That, as a family. Um, let's, 315 is when it starts to phase out. If your income is below 315, you can take the deduction. It does not matter whether you're in a service business or any other kind of business. This qualified business income deduction. So it, the small- small businesses, right. they really do get the benefit. They do. They do. And then that, it, they actually lowered it. The, the threshold was 500,000 originally, and they lowered it to 315 um, because they, they felt like they were capturing too many people. Um, and, and are those numbers and some of the other ones here that we've discussed, are they tied to inflation or CPI or anything like that? So we don't get in a situation again, where we've got hard numbers that don't work you know, five or eight That's years a good from question. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have to double check on whether it's, I, I don't have that note in front of me uh, if it's linked to inflation. My guess is it's indexed. Um, see, like, some of these like are not. To the CPI or something? Yes. Well, yeah. to the reduced CPI. So they, they call it chained CPI, <laughs> the, but chained CPI is probably the index. Um, and chained means less. <laughs> just, yeah, make it, it's right. Lower CPI. I could explain it, but I don't know that anybody wants to So, so let's, talk, let's talk, when we're talking about this 20% reduction and we talk the thresholds of the 300, I think you said 315 yeah. or 415, mm -hmm. what are we comparing that to? Is that to the a family's entire income, including you know maybe a family member that has a W-2 income or normal mm -hmm. income, or is that just tied to the income from the small business? Uh, you're, you're looking at the taxable income of the taxpayer. So, I mean, husband and wife. Together. Together. Um, so if you're, combined taxable income exceeds these thresholds, then, uh, I mean, you're going to lose that deduction. Is but, there anything we can do to jigger it at the end? So you're close. Yeah. You're either at 412 <laughs> or you're at 300 or something and you're close, but it looks like you're going to go over by a dollar or two. Yeah. Is there anything the family can do to try to bring them under and get the benefit? Because it's a big benefit when it goes away, it's gone. It, it's a significant benefit. Now, uh, there are I know this is being looked at by a lot of people right now because we're trying to digest this legislation. That limitate the the best way is honestly to fall outside of a service business. So to the to the extent so too, if you're in law too, too late account, for us. Greg. So for for folks like us, it's that's very difficult. But for other people, they might be on the fence as to 
um, whether they actually fall into this service so there, business there category. So there could be some classification issues? Yes. I, I think you got to look closely at, do you fall into this category or not? If you're one of the enumerated businesses, it's going to be difficult. But if you're in this kind of, well, is, is my skill or my reputation really the thrust of this business or not? then maybe you don't fall into the, this category. That, that would be my first question. Could you bring in, uh, for lack of a better word, another minority partner that has a relatively small share where it's going to go on their tax return, not yours, and it brings you under? Is that okay? That might, you mean in terms of allocating income sure. to, a, to another partner? I mean, as long as it meets the... (laughs) Um, No, but a lot of people, when you're trying to do tax planning, will say, I'm going to give my son or my daughter 2% of the business or 3% of the business for other tax reasons. Could you use that to try to bring you below threshold? Uh, It it might be effective. I think you need to, you know, the partner depends. If you're in an S-corp, you have have different rules for S-corps and partnerships. For partnerships, we have very strict requirements about allocating income uh, to partners. And we have to make sure that they, they meet these kind of economic effect rules. And so I, I would, you would have to vet that thoroughly. So, so, so when I use the word jigger, that's probably, <laughs> I shouldn't put that on my tax return. I, mean, I, I wouldn't use that. <laughs> <laughs> We're really nearing the end of our show. So before we do, we've, we've gotten a remarkably good, I think, explanation of the basics of this tax uh, changes. But what, what's your advice to our listeners as to what they should do next? As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, these changes are, are dramatic. Um, and so what they probably need to do is, is consult with their, a, a lawyer or accountant, whoever their advisor is or their financial advisor, and start to understand how it impacts them. Someone who knows their financial picture and can speak to how these changes would impact them. Because it, it, there's a lot in here. I mean, we're barely covering the surface of what's in this legislation. So I, I, I think for our listeners, they, they, they're getting a big picture right now. They have a sense of, of what may impact them, but they really need to talk to an advisor um, to, to really understand what they can do to, to reap the benefits of this legislation and what changes they may need to make. And if our listeners want to talk to you as their advisor, how would they yeah. get in touch with you? So um, you can uh, reach me at, at Austin and Bird. My email is uh, scott.hardy, H-A-R-T-Y at alston.com uh, or can reach me at the firm through our... And of course, the website, www.something. Alston.com, www.alston.com. As we're wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Our guest today was Scott Hardy, partner in the Federal and International Tax Group at Alston & Bird. Mm-hmm.